Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Mini Sports. Anything and everything for the classic mini since 1967. This week, my guest is David Lancaster, an old colleague of mine. We used to work together back in uh, well, back in the 90s. Um, when I say work together, we work for the same publishing company, but not on the same magazine. Uh, the magazine David worked on dealt in brand new bikes, high performance motorcycles. But I always knew that he had a passion for the very best of uh, British motorcycles from yesteryear, which would mean either Vincent or Bruce Superior. In his case, Vincent, his dad had a Vincent, his dad was a policeman, rode a Vincent, went all over Europe on it. And David's been making this film for quite a long time now. It's great. I've seen it. It's got interviews with Paul Simonon of The Clash, Jay Leno. It's narrated by Ewan McGregor. And it's got John Surtees, the late, great John Surtees, the only man to win the Blue Ribbon events, both on two and four wheels. Probably the only man that'll ever do it, just because it's become so specialised. Um, John's not with us now. He did work at the Vincent factory uh, as an apprentice, and he talks about that in the documentary, which, I'll say again, is really great. It's called Speed is Expensive. I'm sure you'll be able to find all sorts of stuff online about it. There's no need to do that, because my guest this week is the filmmaker, David Lancaster. So, David, the Vincent motorcycle, generally considered to be, by many, including you and I, I think, the greatest motorcycle ever made. And yet, it's from an era before. We're very much of the, the era of Japanese motorcycles, aren't we? I guess we are, yes. Growing up, you know, late 60s, 70s, uh, the Japanese stuff was, you know, rightly, was in the ascendant. Um, I, it's maybe slightly different for me because um, my family, my father rode Vincent all his life. My mother and father did quite a lot of touring in the 50s on their Vincent. And so they went pretty far and wide. They went to Italy, went to Yugoslavia, which was, as you know, Steve, that was quite an undertaking then because there was currency restrictions and no phones, no credit cards. Uh, so I've been around them, but of course that, doesn't mean I've always thought they're the best motorcycle in the world, but having ridden them a lot and done the uh, done the research for the film, I, I think in a in a broader context for 1946 to deliver a motorcycle that could do 110 miles an hour and certainly do 70 or 80 comfortably cruising, pretty amazing. Post-war, just post-war. You know, rationing was still very much enforced, and some people say it was worse than it was during the war. So it, the achievement is amazing, and I, I think the motorcycles are now commanding the prices reflects that. Nine years petrol rationing went on after the war, didn't it? People, a lot of people have. When you tell them that, even people who are sort of well read and you can tie their own shoelaces first thing in the morning are quite 
shocked. So I've had people refuse to believe, go rushing off to Google. And they go, yeah, nine years. I think petrol was the last thing that came off the ration. Yeah, <clears throat> I think you're right. Um, and it, I think it lasted till 52 or 53. You know, they were kind of hanging on to the vestiges of state control. Uh, and obviously the Labour government came in in 45, so there was a, a big change. The NHS was founded, the industries were nationalised. So it really, a, I think talking... We interviewed, in the end, 14 men and women who worked at the factory. And, of course, the further you talk, it's just a, a really interesting time to be in the UK. The people were coming back from the war. There was a lot of injuries. There was a, a big cost in terms of mental issues, mental health, because of the what people had been through. So quite an amazing time, very different to the late 50s and 60s, and we... We look at that and we think about great music and great fashion. Uh, this this period was a struggle. I think a lot of people um, fixate on the 60s. Uh, as you say, the late 50s, early 60s, kind of maybe 58 to 67 as, as, yeah. a, as a decade rather than the 50s or the 60s. I think the immediate post-war decade, let's say 46 to 56... Is infinitely more interesting. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, Britain seemed to be a very grey place at that time. And when you see uh, ordinary cars and motorcycles, not the not the Aston Martins and the, the Jaguars and the the Lanciers and, and the Maseratis that you might see at something like the Goodwood Revival or or you mm. know Pebble Beach or the Quail or somewhere like that, the actual cars and motorcycles that were used by ordinary working people. They're invariably painted either sort of coal black or mucky puddle grey, aren't they? <laughs> yes. And, of course, most of them were, were pre-war vehicles because the whole of the country was turned over to the war effort. It's one of the interesting things. I mean, you, you know American vehicles better than I do, but I'm always surprised that you might see a Harley-Davidson, a 1942 model. We, we, this was a kind of a big blank for uh, British vehicles, cars and motorcycles. There just wasn't much launched in 1942. I'm trying to struggle to think of anything. Well, my father... My father... Yeah. I was going to say, my father um, never would never watch the TV series Heartbeat, even mm -hmm. though you would have thought that a man bought, born a couple of years into the war, that would have been right up his strasse. You know, it's the 1960s, I think... Actually, set in the 1960s, the TV series lasted twice as long as the actual decade that it was set in. <laughs> but he refused to watch it because, of course, what they did was populate the programme, um, which was populate the programme with 1960s vehicles. So yeah. every bike was a Triumph Bonneville or a BSA Gold Star. Every car was a Ford Anglia or a, a Morris Minor or a, a, a Mark II Jag. My dad said he spent the early 60s driving around in a pre-war Morris. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was because, you know, he lived on a farm, and I think my, my grandfather was a real wheelie dealer. He'd take, uh, in fact, he had a Morris 8. Um, was it a Morris 8? It was a pre-war Morris. And uh, his bike, he, which he tried to turn into a cafe racer. This is, mm -hmm. when you hear this, it's the unlikeliest of bikes. Uh, an aerial square four. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, which he, which my grandfather had got with a sidecar, and then used for moving things around the farm equipment okay. as, as farmers do. 
and uh, and then my father inherited it and immediately set to with a hacksaw trying to remove anything that was weight had any weight to it and right. uh, create an unlikely calf racer from a bike which was generally thought of as something that you attached to a sidecar. Yes, that's a lovely thing, so I'm a big admirer of those those square fours because it was, it was Edward Turner's pre-war engine, wasn't it, before he went to Triumph. And like the post-war Triumphs, it's just very elegant, very neat, very stylish. Um, and I guess the only motorcycle that you would put in the same category as the Vincent, it, it wasn't as fast, but you know, by the late 40s, you could by then, I think, buy a thousand cc square four, couldn't you? It was a 600 to begin with, I think. Yeah, my, my father just said he remembers it as being very tall and heavy. And when he could swap, mm. when he could swap it for a triumph, he um, did. <laughs> he did. And yeah. my pal yeah. Ian, a Scotsman who were uh, a very interesting guy, spent his life like so many. How old would Ian be now? Early 80s, mid 80s? Yeah, mid 80s, I would imagine. I hope he's still with us, good Lord. I hope I'm not talking about a bloke who's no longer around, because he's a cracking yeah. cracking fella. I know him through his association with the Busy Bee Motorcycle Club, which you'll you'll know well. You know, one of the one of the most famous the Busy Bee, one of the most famous spots yeah. uh for the Tunnock Boys and the Cafe Racers and all the rockers, whatever you want to call them, all those guys, sort of early sixties. And Ian himself had a life in engineering and was was something to do. He, he's alluded to it a couple of times, but not gone into too much detail. Something to do with the Blue Streak project, which, of course, you'll know, was Britain's Britain's um, attempt to keep up with the Russians and the Americans in the in the sort of arms race that went on and the space race that went on um, yeah. in the post-war period, much of which happened in Australia. And he's mentioned it a couple of times. I pressed him for details, but I think... I think he still thinks, because he, he signed the Official Secrets Act in, like, 1963 or something like that, <laughs> he's still got to keep his mouth shut, which is he's great. Wrote, I mean, wrote about the knock on the door. Yeah, think, well, yeah. well, we're so old now, I can remember when people who were in the SAS would not talk about it. Now you can't yeah. stop them from talking about it. Mm. There's a guy that you and I both know, and I'm not even going to say his name, I'm not even going to say his nickname on the radio. Yeah. I work with him a lot, and people used to say to me, you know, he used to be in the SAS. And I was like, and he seemed like the sort of bloke who might have been. You know, you get a vibe, don't you, of certain people. Mm. Mm. And he and I used to work together quite a lot, including going over to Europe to do things. So, you know, ferry journeys, long car journeys. Yeah. The, the first time I brought it up, a couple of years into knowing him, I brought it up, mm. silence in the vehicle. Mm. Silence in the vehicle for like an hour. <laughs> as, we're, as we're driving across Europe to get to this event for an hour, because I casually brought it up and he just clammed up completely, and I never guess what never mentioned it again. The reason I mention I, I say this is because I was stood with Ian at an event, China Way, and a Vincent pulled onto the car park, and he said, uh, and I went, I said. Look at that, Ian, and Vincent. And he went, ha! He said, my 110 would show that the way home every mm. time. And a lot of the lads back in the day thought of the Vincent perhaps as in the same way that maybe people in the sort of sports career might have thought of a big old sort of blower Bentley from the 20s or something like that. Something, you know, yeah. just a big, heavy, expensive piece of kit and let, let's be let's be honest 
for posh boys who could afford it. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's not my, that's not what I think, but there is a school of thought that thinks, yeah, those old Bentleys and those old Vincents and Bruce Superiors and stuff like that, you know, they, they couldn't, on a British road, a winding British country road, they couldn't keep up with a BSA Gold Star or a, a Bonneville or, you know, a, a Norton, could they? I do. I think, uh, I think with two good riders, I think they would be evenly matched. You know, the Black Shadow, as you know, is the, the fastest, or the fastest sort of mainstream available one. And they are big, and they, they do steer slowly. You, you can't pitch them in like you could a gold star. Mm. On the other hand, you know, if, if the road is such that you need to get from 70 to 110, the Vincent, I think, would, mm. would outgun the others. And they, they were always built not to be back road scratchers. You know, the idea was, obviously, Vincent himself was very keen on setting speed records. His, his co-designer, Phil Irving, was a bit more dubious, I think. They wanted to build a motorcycle that would cruise comfortably two up. Um, and they do have this very relaxing gait to the engine. It's, it's a very low revving engine. So... I guess on a, on a sort of back road scratch, I think you're right. Um, but not many gold stars took their owners to Yugoslavia like my parents, Vincent, took them in 1956. My pal, who I was talking to just before we did this interview, my pal's always harping on, and he should because it sounds crazy, he did a very similar trip to the one that your parents did back oh, right. in the day. And he did it on a Kawasaki two-stroke triple. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I said to him, how many times did you have to fill it up with yeah. petrol? Because he did the whole thing. He went all Spain, over to Italy, Yugoslavia, back wow. through Switzerland. Kawasaki Tripoli, show me the photograph. Have you got, he showed me the photograph of his. Have you got photos of, of your parents from that journey? Was your dad a, a snapper? It was usually the he, man he, who was the photographer. He was a bit, and in fact, the, the 35 mil trannies, uh, and both my parents passed away quite a while ago now. Um, it was looking at those after they'd passed on that made me think about these stories about that, that generation. Um, I had this sort of mental image of my parents would always go with some friends. So you, you maybe get three or four or five even Vincents cruising through a field in war-torn Italy, and it must have looked like something from another planet. You know, these young, cool dudes as all our parents were, we only then come to realise later. And that's partly what triggered the, the Vincent documentary, was to think, OK, you know, what, what about that generation? What was it like to uh, go to work at the Vincent factory in the post-war period? What was it like to tell someone that I work at Vincent's? And that led myself and my co-producer, Jerry Jenkinson, to, in the end, track down 14 men and women who worked at the factory, including John Surtees, which a lot of people don't know. He was an apprentice there. That was his first and his only proper job. And he did day release at Hitching College. And <laughs> it's interesting what he went on to do afterwards, but it was at Vincent's, that was his first job. I can't think of anybody else, David, of of the stature of John Surtees, who I knew quite well. Um, in fact... This will bring me on to something else that, that perhaps you and I can put to bed once and for all. I can't yeah. think of, of, of anyone else of his stature who actually, may, well, no, Percy Tate's not no John Surtees, but 
a great man in his own right, a great racer, slippery salmon, all that business. But, you know, let's not forget, Formula One world champion, Grand Prix world champion, whatever you want to call it, and, you know, the winner of the world's premier, the Blue Ribbon Motorcycle Racing Championship, whatever they want to call it, it seems to change the name every two minutes these days. Um, nobody nobody that of that ilk. Giacomo Agostini did not get his hands dirty in some, mm. you know... <laughs> In some, in some specialist little motorbike shop, uh, tucked away as the Vincent factory was um, yeah. in the lovely countryside, thirty miles north of London, on the great on the Great North Road. The Did, great North Road, yeah. Right. So before we move on to why Philip Vincent chose that location, let's put something to bed once and for all. There's a photograph that circulates on the internet of a man yeah. getting his knee down on oh, a Vin- yeah. on a Vincent. David Lancaster, yeah. please put everyone straight <laughs> on who that is and what's going on there. It's Mark Forsyth from a feature in Performance Bikes, which was about the history of knee sliding. And I used to know Mark, I'm sure you know him still probably, and wonderful rider, he won the Battle of Twins, I think, twice. Um, and it is fascinating. Somebody's labelled it John Surtees, and I rather foolishly, I've, I've given up, but, you know, I say, oh, no, it's Mark Forsyth. You know, no, no, it's John Surtees. Of course it's not John Surtees. It doesn't look anything like him. John Surtees didn't ride with his knee on the deck, uh, and certainly not round a roundabout near Peterborough where the picture was taken. I, I, I now enjoy it when I see it. I've, I've, I've gone to the other side, and I go, oh, no, <laughs> it'll be John Surtees. I did the same thing. I did the same thing. Oh, by the way, before we move on to how I did the same thing, um, does anybody think that John Surtees would have worn a commuter corker helmet while he yes, was going about his business as a, as a racer? He may have worn yeah. a helmet, but he wouldn't have worn one that would have been marketed by Waddington or Everhawk or somebody like that to, <laughs> to ladies who had a BSA dandy or a Lambretta. But, yeah. I, I, David, I used to do the same thing. I saw a picture which still circulates this day and, and says it's... David Bowie and Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin getting right. into a Mercedes outside recording studios in LA. It's not Robert Plant. It really, really looks like him. But it's David yeah. David Sanborn, who was a session musician who worked with David Bowie at that time. So I used okay. I used to think it was my mission to stop it. I was going, <laughs> it's not Robert Plant. It's not Robert Plant. Now, every time I see it and it says, look at this, who would have thought that Robert Plant and David Bowie were big mates? Here they are getting yeah. in his car. And I'm like, now, like you, I just enjoy it and think, you know. It's like, um, I don't know about you, the older I get, when, when there's a conversation at cross purposes, I, I, I enjoy that greatly. I, I never correct anybody when they said something and it's been misheard. I just say, Let's see where this goes. <laughs> I sit back and watch. One of life's pleasures Steve. middle age, I think. They tap you on the they tap you on the shoulder. They go, "Here, Steve, you're into bikes, yeah. aren't you?" Yeah. And you don't go, "Well, I've made it my entire life and career." But yeah, you you go you go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And they go, "Right, well, my mate's got a bike, right? And he bought it at auction. It's a Harley Davidson. I think you know what's coming." Yeah. And he and and they say it's a Harley Davidson. And uh, and he decided he was going to restore it. And when he took it apart, he, he unbolted the seat. And when he took it off, there was a plaque on the underside. And do you know what it said? Do you know what it said? And they tapped me on the shoulder. It said, yeah. to Elvis from oh. your... And right, you can, you can interchange the two. To yeah. Elvis from your great friend, James Dean. 
like that. And then they go, and what do you think of that? How much do you think that's worth? <laughs> and what it used to say was, do you realise that by the time that James Dean had been killed in his Porsche race car on the way to a meeting when an 18-year-old lad in a great big land yacht just pulled out in front of him and the fact that he was in a yeah. car, a car that you could comfortably park on the bootlid of the American car yeah. that, that he yeah. hit. Do you realise that James Dean was had died before Elvis had stopped driving a truck around Tupelo, Mississippi? You know, it's like, do you, do, you, do you not get the fact that Dean was dead before Elvis's recording career started? Could you not just Google that, spend 20... Now I just say, wow, that's probably worth loads of money. Yeah, and they, yeah. and they, because the good thing is, is they take a sip of their pint and they go, yeah, and walk off. That's it. But, you, you know, you, you don't want to get in an argument. There's no point often. There's absolutely very little point. And I don't know why people don't use Google more for these simple tasks. <laughs> because it, because it's, it's a good story. It, it's kind of, what I think it is, is when you, when people meet somebody who is... I was going to say, like, because it makes us sound like we're some sort of, you know, like some sort of separate breed from the, from the rest of society. I suppose we are, in a way. Where people say, oh, yeah, he's, uh, he's to you, oh, yeah, he's a writer and journalist and he's a filmmaker and, yeah, he's motorbikes, yeah, motorbikes. So they think, right, have I got a motorbike story? And they, make, yeah. they go through the, show me AJ, they go through the mental Rolodex. Yeah, the Rolodex. Yeah. They go through the mental Rolodex and they go, um, science fiction, tractors, Motorbikes, yeah, yeah. James Dean, Elvis Presley, and so they tell you the story, and you go, "Yeah, great, okay, thank you." I'm with well, pa- I'm with the the great the great Patty Smith, who said recently, "When I was young, I wanted to change the world more than anything else. Then I realised I couldn't, so now I just try and enjoy it." And I thought, "Wow, that yeah. is <laughs> that, that's that's, that's my world view." I think <laughs> I was well, I used to be there in a in a ex East German combat jacket. And by the way, people who wore those like me in the late 70s and early 80s, if you think that the East Germans have finished with a pair of boots or a jacket, I mean, how much, <laughs> how much where do you think you were going to get out of it? I was there yeah. waving placards at all these, you know, whatever. If, if somebody had a just cause, the anti-Nazi leagues rock against racism, I'm not saying I don't believe in those things, but, oh, I'd be, I'd be there in the minibus with a placard and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, does the world not want to change that much? Okay, I'll just... Maybe, Maybe not. I'll just try and tell stories and keep people entertained, hopefully, and a bit. And, uh, you know, if I could do that, if I could well, do that, that, then that's great, enough. A great Fleet Street phrase, that a story is often too good to check. And that, that applies to those anecdotes, as you say. That they, if, if the story's good and they've relayed it several times, you know, nobody wants to be told they're wrong. And they don't want to find out for themselves and most people don't challenge things like you say you maybe would have done at some point but now you go oh great yeah that's worth a lot and then walk away and have a chat with somebody else <laughs> let's talk about how much a vincent is worth oh goodness yeah oh goodness indeed mm. can do you have an anecdote about being able to buy one for a ridiculously small amount of money back in the day i bet you do uh, yes please there's tell a, it <laughs> well there's a very good vincent uh Vincent owners, the club owner, is the sports secretary called Tim King, and he tracked for his book quite a sort of specialist volume on the Black Shadow. He tracked the prices, so he went through all these old copies of the motorcycle and motorcycling, 
And of course, you do that, you come up with a graph, and there was a dip, and sort of mid to late 60s, into the early 70s a bit, you know, they were, they were still respected, but they were cheap, because of course, as you know, the Vincent's quite complicated, the front forks are completely different to anything else, really. The spares had dried up, and some of them were with badly serviced front forks. They, they can be prone to doing tank slappers. Not, not the very early forks, not the Branton's, but the, uh, the typically complicated Vincent ones, the Gertrolics. And so people, and by then, you know, the Honda was coming, the Z1 wasn't far away. And people thought, yeah, it's, what, what's the point in paying, you know, two grand for this? You can, at one stage, you could get them for 60, 80 quid. But in terms of the demographics, it is interesting because my dad was a, a police officer and, and started his career as a carpenter. So there was a, a cadre of people that just liked the Vincent and didn't necessarily worry about some gold star with be able to turn left a little more sharply and and those those owners those enthusiasts endured all the way through and then they did <clears throat> begin to see the values rise certainly in the 80s you know you'll remember the classic car boom of the 80s which then fell on its face the the motorcycles especially vincent's perhaps periods began to creep up you know 15 20 then 25 30 and They've leveled off in the last two years, but it, it, you're still probably paying over 30 for, for a good Vincent Rapide. The Black Shadow's now got a, a very high premium, even though it's really a tuned Rapide with a painted engine. It becomes about the name, and a lot of collectors, particularly in America and Europe, but over here, they just want a Black Shadow. And you could sit down and say, well, you know, if the Rapide you're looking at there, it's 15 grand cheaper and the guy that builds it is really good and it's built to Black Shadow spec. No, no, no. I want a Black Shadow. <laughs> it's the same bike, really. But that, that's, that's when the market takes over, Steve, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I wonder if the Black Shadow and the, the legend of the Black Shadow... Well, I was going to say, I wonder, you've just kind of explained it. I don't even know why I'm, 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 I'm labouring the point, to be honest with you. I think you've just very eloquently explained the question I was, answered the question I was going to put to you, which is, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you have a comet, don't you, David? No, I used to. Oh, right. I used to have a, <clears throat> to have a pre-war comet, so that was a lovely 1930s, 1939. Sorry, I was basing that on the last time that we were physically in the same space, and uh, which was at a motorcycle event. And it was, wasn't it? I, I'm sure. doing I'm yeah. doing that thing that men of a certain age do, which is thinking that nothing has changed since we <laughs> saw each other, and it's yeah. got to be at least ten or twelve years ago. So I'm going. You've got a comment. I mean, you know, it's like yeah. no, I'm not going to. I haven't. I haven't. No, things have moved on. <laughs> I sold it to buy a jack. Right. That's what's moved on. Right. I, with a with a family, let's let's have something old and potentially unreliable that we could all travel in rather than <laughs> just travel on. Yeah, <laughs> which could, is what we do. Which is what we do now. Well, you could have just put a sidecar on it, like people used yeah. a, a double adult bus mar or something like that. Oh, you... I've tried driving or riding, whatever you do. I've tried them, and I've ended up going over roundabouts and bending falls, and it's just God is telling me. 
don't don't be in charge of a psycho outfit. I've, I've done some very good trips. I did a, a wonderful trip in 2008 in Fritz side car, and we drove down from Switzerland down into Italy to the Vincent Owners Rally there. Um, and that was wonderful. But, you know, he knows what he's doing, and he then later set a speed record at Bonneville at the age of 72 on a Hayabusa with a third wheel. So I was in good hands. So I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, the idea of, you know, when you when you do one thing that you do on a solo, it completely changes it, and the, the bike does something else, doesn't it? And I thought, oh, I can't, I can't really learn motorcycling at my age. I brought Fritz's VMAX, and he was he was really nice about it because mm-hmm. we we went to see him um, with a camera crew back in the day. And I remember with Paul Mike Mike Wood, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, with Mike Wood, yeah, yeah, and um, he he wanted us to. I was interested in the Vincents, really, but also the VMAXs, which was his other thing. And he had yeah. this supercharged VMAX. And yeah. and this is this story includes a cautionary tale about fingerless gloves, which is <laughs> which is not something that I would imagine that you <laughs> you have in your wardrobe that much, unless you've got a sort of a goth side that I don't know about, you know, a predilection for kind of... Uh, Marhouse, an alien sex fiend, of which you were no, previ- previously I, I, unaware. I, I, I have got a 1960s racing bicycle, and I have got fingerless gloves, so you, you've got me. Um, right, well, there I'm you go. So here's, Right, well, you would have been okay on a bicycle with what happened to me. So I decided that because I was going to ride this big sort of muscle bike, I was going to dress up a bit muscle bikey. So I was yeah. going to wear the only pair of black leather jeans, not not trousers, not like riding leathers jeans like jim morrison might wear black leather yeah. jeans that i've ever owned and i was going to wear an open face helmet and like dark glasses and i was going to wear for the first and only time fingerless gloves mm-hmm. so we get to fritz's place obviously fritz eagley the probably the the name that's most associated and best known with vincent motorcycles that wasn't part of the vincent family fritz eagley over there in switzerland and yeah. um, he said, right, and he was such a jolly guy. He, we got him like house on fire straight away, although his motorbike would be on fire a couple of hours after that, but I'm getting <laughs> ahead of myself. So um, he said, uh, okay, Steve, oh, okay, lads, right, here's the bike and the, the van. And we said, well, can we not just... And he said, no, no, you, we can't ride this bike in Switzerland. You've got to go over the border. <laughs> ah, <laughs> so we yeah. were like, oh, okay. So we put, he said, just pop over the border into Germany and you'll be fine. And he was only... a few kilometers to the border so we got in the we we got the truck and off we went and we took the bike over and we got the bike out we got to a road that the director liked and uh he said right steve you just go up there and then come buzzing down here past the camera and you know we'll we'll get some we'll start get, getting some shots so i did it a couple of times and i pulled up and uh the the cameraman was a south african gentleman who was a good mm-hmm. good mate of mine called keith who was a very direct guy. He'd seen a lot of things in his life, and he, if he saw something, he just told it like it was. And so up and down I went, and I pulled up, and I went, how's that? And Keith went, great, but your trousers are on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked down, and, and it, did, it did appear that my trousers were indeed on fire. Uh, but they weren't. It was just hot oil that was like sort mm. of coming from the big hole in the in the engine that I'd managed to generate from going up and down. And um, so I went to put out what I thought was the fire mm. and burnt my fingers because obviously, 
burnt the ends of my f- because I was wearing. Bl- I remember at the time going, realizing I was in agony and thinking, I've only ever worn fingerless gloves on a motorcycle once on my entire life, and it's the time that I have to put out my fire in my trousers. And now I'm burning my ends. I am never ever wearing bloody fingerless gloves again, and I never have. I never have. Uh, I think that's a lesson. But well, it was. It applies to the leather trousers as well as the gloves, doesn't it? But when we go. Oh, yeah, exactly. When, well, I never wore leather jeans. Leather jeans. Right, leather jeans. Jim Morrison looked fantastic in leather jeans. I yeah. don't. And Elvis also looked great on the old comeback special in, in black yeah. leather jeans. I don't know if any other man that's ever drawn breath has looked good in black leather jeans. I certainly didn't, so I, di- I didn't do it again. But um, we should explain, really, sort of, you know, what Fritz Eagley did with Vincent's, which made him a bit of a mm. legend. He uh, raised the standard Vincent, uh, and he actually met Philip Vincent. He, he rode over from Switzerland to compete at Church Lawford. Uh, and it, this is a classic, not many people know this. And So he met Philip Vincent, this is in 64. He was with his wife at the time, which has become a very famous internet picture of Margaret leaving the line on her very lightened comet. Anyway, <clears throat> he found in the hill climbs that they were competing in that the, the, the Vincent was yeah, slow to turn in, it, it was heavy. So he put Norton Fawkes on and then he thought, I still think this can be made to handle better. So he basically designed a very elegant frame, very much a homage to the Vincent. So it, it carried the oil above the engine, as the Vincent does, but then it's just really simple, the triangular I was going to say conventional swinging arm. It's conventional compared to the Vincent. But Fritz actually was the first to use an oval section swinging arm. We're getting tacky. Um, the the Eddie Vincent that he produced a couple of years after this, this racing, is to me, it's the most beautiful motorcycle after the Vincent. And the, the banana tank, which he designed... That was designed to pick up on the flow of the exhaust pipes. And it was bristling with really cool kit. Brembo cable-operated disc brakes. I've got a lovely picture of my father who used to visit Fritz in the 60s on, I think it's the first or the second production one. And it's just the most beautiful motorcycle, I think. And then that gave the Vincent, certainly in terms of kind of club racing, it really gave it a second life because you have this very latest Italian suspension and Fritz was a, a very good engine tuner as well as a frame designer um, putting out about 70 horsepower which is which is significant and as you know with the Vincent the, the get up and go is available in from the off you know it's not an engine that you need to rev and rev and rev and the Eggy Vincent then was various people made versions the, the only sanctioned one was by uh, Frenchman called Patrick Godet, who's passed away. And Patrick and Fritz really made, I think, over 200 in the sort of 90s, 2000s, possibly more. And Godet motorcycles are still making them in near Rouen in France. And Fritz was 85 this weekend. And he's still going well. And I think he's still riding his sidecar. He doesn't ride a solo. But that's pretty good for 85, isn't it? Damn straight. I must admit, like I say, he was incredibly nice because we mm. we we put the broken motorbike in the back of the van 
and took it back to his shop and I thought, I thought there's no glossing over this, you know, there's, there's no saying, there's no pretending like saying, yeah, we finished with that and just leaving it in the back of the van and then thinking we'll be on a plane by the time he notices. I just went straight in and said, Fritz, I'm really sorry, but your motorbike, uh, the bike sort of blew up. It's like going a fairly major way and there's oil everywhere. And he just went, oh my God, how embarrassing. Are you okay? Blah, blah, blah. He was just so nice about it. And then I thought, hold on a minute. Why was I feeling guilty? It's his bloody yeah. it's his bloody bike that blew up and nearly yeah. you know potentially poured oil all over the back wheel. Right, this is not having a go at Fritz Egley. I probably went too fast on it from cold and that was what caused the problem. But you uh, know yeah. the guy's a legend. You know the bikes are beautiful, and and that's that. Isn't it odd though that when when you think that the two most legendary names in sort of high end specialist high performance British bikes are now being made. In France. <laughs> yeah. Because, yes. of course, Prof Superiors are being made there now, aren't they? That, no, that's right. Um, yeah, how odd. <laughs> there's, always, there's always been a first over there, as you know, for, for the, the fastest and the best. Uh, the same with the Americans. I mean, Vincent sold pretty well overseas. It was, you know this, Steve, it was the export or die drive post-war to bring in hard currency. Sir Stafford Cripps, one of the most interesting men in British political yes. life. Mm. And you could only really get the raw materials if you could go to the ministry and say, we've got an order for 200 repeats and it's going to Argentina and we need more materials. So they, they sold a lot to Argentina because Vincent had grown up there and his family was still there at the time. But his sister lived there all her life. Um, the Americans loved it because it was fast. And then, of course, the very famous picture of Roly Free, which we've tracked down some moving footage of for Speed is Expensive. And and that really put it on the map, and that was 1948. And that's the one that everybody will know, or many people will know. He couldn't quite get to 150, so his leathers had been damaged, the leathers were flapping around, so he just said, well, I'm going to do it, and wear my swimming trunks. For extra safety, I'll wear a crash helmet. <laughs> but it's phenomenal, because, you know, the, the biggest danger most often with motorcycle accidents, it can be abrasions and an infection in the skin. And you imagine going down at Bonville Salt Flats at 150 with a pair of swimming trunks, you, 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 you'd, you'd be shredded. An amazingly brave guy. And I, I met him in Canada in the 70s at a Vincent rally, and he was a kind of little old man, but fascinating to listen to him talk about it. And, you know, well, were you mad? You know, you know I got the record. You know, he had a really good answer to everybody. I've got a record of 150 on a pretty standard motorcycle, you know, and sometimes you've got to take your leathers off. <laughs> it puts your, your fingerless gloves into context, Steve, I have to say. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I met a chap at a, a car rally. When When's this got to be? Well, it was mainly a car event. There were some bikes there. This has got to be about seven or eight years ago. It's called the Dr. John Car Show, and it's in a place called Indio in the high desert in California. And he was sat next to this Vincent, and this Vincent... I mean, of course, the legend here in the UK is Vinnie Longlegs, mm. which is, you know, I mean, you'd know a lot more about it than me, but how many miles on that bike? Is it something like... Is it half oh, a million or something half, like Half a million, I think. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I yeah. think some phenomenal amount. And the guy who owned it, Stuart, yeah, he would do these tours over to Greece and... Um, and that was a, a Black Prince, you know, it was the, the, 
the model that if in the cold light of day you have to say really killed off the Vincent that the enclosed models didn't sell the fiberglass was very poor people said rightly so it looks like a big scooter but you know Stuart would go all over Europe and and Canada my father loved his black prints and he would every year he went to Europe down to Italy or over to Germany and people would go yeah but but look at it and he go oh, it's great I've got it here <laughs> Really long legs is now back as a standard bike, even though it's had all these quite practical but possibly not attractive alterations on it. But you know, the Americans, excuse me, they've always loved speed, haven't they? And the Vincent was a really good starting point to get some records. Okay. Um, I'll tell the story about the guy that I met at the Doctor John Carr show another time. There'll be be another time to tell that story, but. Because you've just brought something up that I'm going to ask you straight out. Did Philip yeah. did Philip Vincent nick the idea for his bike from Indian and Harley Davidson? When you say nick the idea, well, was he inspired? Shall, well, shall we say inspired? I mean, you, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to see to see the film, uh, your your your, doc, your documentary, which I absolutely loved, particularly because um, I, there were so many. I've seen so many images of Vincent's. A million times down the years and your film had so much footage that i had never seen and no. bike, bikes i'd never seen some of it in color which like blew me away you know like you're yeah. saying i we've all seen the rolly free photograph of rolly lying full length on the bike in his in his helmet i think yeah. some people think it's a swimming cap again it's one of those things where people say oh yeah it's a swimming cap and it's actually a yeah, helmet but he is wearing espadrilles, as I think we'd call them. I'm not sure the, yeah. the Americans. We've seen it, but actual footage of it, like cine footage, I'd never seen that. Yeah. And, oh, I, yeah. and I, you know, I'm the sort of saddo who sits there most nights. I've ignored tele- <clears throat> television for the thick end of 20. Made quite a lot of television. I don't watch it. I, you know, I've spent a lot of time watching Pathé and and, and, mm. <laughs> and and other newsreels from back in the day. Any kind of old car racing motorcycle racing, speed record type stuff. I'd never seen that. I'd no, never, I'd never seen it. But uh, in, in, the, in the documentary, Speed is Expensive, narrated by Ewan McGregor, no less, has he got a Vincent, David? Do we know he's got a considerable motorcycle collection? Does he have... No, does, I, don't, I don't believe he has. And the, he's a guzzy man, isn't emails, he? Well, it's, I said to him, well, when you're next over here, there's a couple of people more than happy to say, you and take it out, let's go for lunch. Um, so I think he might be warming to it. You know what it's like, Steve. You, you get in the groove. He loves the, the motor goodies. I think he's got a couple of Harleys. And it's quite a big step to come out of that tradition and go, I'm going to buy this 70-year-old design that everybody tells me is the best in the world and perhaps I'll be disappointed. But I'm kind of working on him. And there's a, another friend of yours, and he's very into Vincent's. And it's, let's see. I think let's see. Jason Momoa might beat him to it. <laughs> yeah, um, Ryan Reynolds is a big Vincent fan. Uh, Brad Pitt has got a Vincent. Uh, they're, they're kind of it, not surprising, you know. They're collectible. They're collected. Although, when it comes to celebrity owners of Vincents, all are put in the shade by perhaps the world's preeminent um, auto enthusiast, the one and only. I think he's a legend, uh, Jay Leno, and I mean his his Vincent yeah. collection is. <clears throat> Is phenomenal, and of course, he is no Johnny Come Lately, is he? He's had his Vincent no. a long time. 
he's had it. Uh, there's a lovely bit in, I think it's in the trailer as well, but in the film where he talks about the guy selling him, I think his first one. And the guy said, it'll go 100 miles an hour. And, and Jay's on the back in a very Jay Leno way. Just pull over, I'll buy it. I got here in the middle of Los Angeles. He's got, he's got virtually every one. And, and, and he, he does ride them. And his knowledge of them, as it is of all those vehicles, it's just phenomenal. You walk through his garage and you stop and look at something and then he'll talk about it really knowledgeably and then you go to another one and it, it, he's got this database. As you say, he's, he's, he's like us petrol heads. He's, he's, he's looking and thinking about them all day long. But an, Sad an really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, so uh, we're running out of time, so it's possibly um, time for me to tell... I've got a few Vincent stories, but I suppose the best one, you, you were saying about two good riders, and one of my greatest days out in this job was spending it with two great riders, Norman Peach and Ted Davis, mm -hmm. from Vincent. And we went to what is now, well, it was. I say is now. I'm doing that thing again, David, where something happened 20 years ago, and I say is now, because <laughs> this yeah. was 20 years ago, and I shouldn't imagine that either Norman or Ted is still with us because they were, they were of an advanced age then. Mm. Although I'm not wishing them gone, but um, no, they're, they're both gone. Yeah, yeah, I thought they might be. They were, they were, one of them had to be helped onto the bike when we when we did this, and we went to the boys' school. Perhaps it's still a boys' school where the, where the factory was in Stevenage, right there on what used to be called the Great North Road. And they told me stories of winding up a black lightning to 140 mile an hour at seven mile bottom, which they used mm. to near Newmarket. They used, to, I mean, you'd know all this and. You know, all, all of this is in the film, which you should all say, Speed is Expensive, um, the story, the untold story of Vincent. And it really is. People say that when they make a documentary. They say, oh, the untold story. And I watch it and I think, I knew all this stuff. I yeah. am really into Vincent's and there's loads of stuff in this documentary that I did not know and loads of footage, which must have been a nightmare to track down. More, more of a detective job than a filmmaking job. But there you go. Anyway, we spent the day there. We recreated a bit of the factory by shipping in some machines but the best part of the day is the time when me norman and ted got on three vincents and headed up the great north road mm. and within and i thought all oh, these two old boys like i say they're both i don't know when you say test rider presumably david they had other jobs that, you know they, they probably had like any small specialist concern like that, the test rider is probably also an engineer and, you know, three or four other responsibilities as well. Because it's not like Honda. You, haven't, you, you Presumably you haven't got full-time test riders. But we set off up the road and I thought, we're probably going to take it easy. Yeah. Within a couple of minutes, two or three minutes, we were doing 85, 90, overtaking everything on the road. It was absolutely yeah. mind-blowing. These two old boys, like I say, one of them helped onto the bike... We, yep. were, we were up to we were up to faster than everything else on the road on these, which would have been at the time forty odd fifty year old motorcycles. We were up to eighty five ninety straight away, which is where we stayed, and it was like yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is fantastic, yeah. absolutely <clears throat> fantastic. There are some great, there are some good days, and there are very very few great days. That was a great day to have the yeah, priv privilege of being with us. Yeah, so. You know, I actually know what, what they're like to ride at speed, and they are remarkable. This is why you've made your film. This is why Jay Leno's such a fan, all these other people that we've been talking about who know bikes and who could could pick and choose from any bike, you know. 
Because compared yeah. to cars, bikes, even Vincent's, are, you know, speed is expensive, but it's much less expensive on two wheels than it is on four wheels. You know, I've got, I've got a lot of guys who are now getting into classic bikes because the classic car market's going crazy. So they've kind yeah. of left that and come back to their first love from their teenage years, motorcycles, and have started to buy loads of bikes, which is great because <laughs> I get to ride them like Z1s yeah. and CBXs and Norton Commandos. And stuff. Keep buying classic bikes. So when I go around, they go, oh, do you want to go on this? And we just go out. We have a great time. Cool. But it was so great, not just to ride one, but to actually ride one at speed. And it, and I think, you know, um, we're running out of time now, but, but I'll ask you about this. I think you only understand what is special about a Vincent if you ride it for a period of time at high speed. You Then you, yes. then you get it. Then you understand. Yeah, no, that's very true. And they do, the steering lightens up and... The responsiveness. I mean, I said they're they're quite low revving engines. The, the bizarre thing about them is that they they actually rev very nicely as well. Obviously, not like a multi, but it, it, it isn't an old slogger. People kind of think no. it's an old V twin, like some sidecar hack from the thirties. They get better the faster you go, and as you say, you actually have to do that. If, if you took one round the block at a pub car park, you'd go, well, okay. You spend a couple of hours, like you say, above 60, 70, 80, and you think, this thing just keeps going. Yeah, it just it, keeps it, going. This well of torque and power, uh, uh, that's what still astounds me. That they, they worked on the bikes, they planned the bikes during the war. They were out of the gates, 1946. The rest of the British industry was, you know, repainting pre-war models, and bang, here's a 1,000cc with four brakes, uh, no conventional frame, and you know, 50-odd horsepower, enough to get you to 110. Mm. And it, it's the bike... The bike had a... It, the, the bike was lucky, in a way, that the man who formed the company and employed Philip Irving and made it all happen had a great name. Vincent is a great name for a motorcycle. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I mean, think about it. He could have easily been called, like... Fanshaw or or Smithers or so you know yeah. <laughs> Vincent. It just sounds for some reason. It's just a great. It's the right length. It looks great on the on the bike itself, and it, it, and to me, it just it encapsulates. And the, obviously, it's a V and it's a V twin and all that stuff. You couldn't make it up. Like so many no. things of the story, it's well, just it was, perfect. It was a genius. For names, if you think of the grey flash, the black lightning, the black prints, I, I mean, I think one of Vincent's part of his his success, part of his genius, wasn't just developing this rear suspension system, but was marketing and making the motorcycles he wanted to, um, despite the marketplace, and then naming them with this sort of poetic flourish. Um, so the single cylinder racer was a grey flash, and it was this beautiful matte kind of grey colour. I just think he, 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 he envisioned motorcycles and then what turned out of the factory was pretty much as he envisioned it. And, and that's, to me, that's a really creative mind that makes it happen as well as just think about it. Well, David, it's been great to talk to you. I've, I've, I hope you don't mind. I've resisted talking about your film because I want people to watch it. So I thought okay. we, we mustn't talk about the film for an hour because then people would think, oh, well, I know everything that's in it now. It yeah, is. Yeah. It is. It is really great. I loved. I loved seeing 
all the stuff that you dug up, God knows where you got it from or how you got it, <laughs> but it was fantastic. <laughs> I'm not asking. I'm just glad I didn't have to do it. Fantastic to see. Now, of course, people need to find out where they can see it and how they can see it. So, to just tell us, how do people watch your movie, watch your documentary? Okay. We've got a, an encore performance at the part of the Barnes Film Festival, which we were lucky to win an award at, and that is on July the 16th at the Hammersmith Riverside Studios. Uh, there's some tickets left for that. And then a couple of other festivals over in America we are entering, and we're starting to talk to agents, broadcasters, streamers, um, and you know, get it out to as wide a group of people as we can. So have you got a website or a Facebook page that people can check up yeah. on? Because, you know, we bizarrely, this podcast is listened to, we, we kind of know who's listened to it live, and we've it's listened to in some places you wouldn't imagine, like Vietnam, we seem to be... I know I harp on about it, but I think we, in Vietnam we've got quite a large... My brother lives there, but I'm sure... It, I, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's just my brother that's, what, that's yeah, listening yeah. to it. So um, when yeah, is it going to be available, streamed, or to download, or, or whatever, David? When do you think? It's a good question. I ah, right. Could give us a bit of time, right? Because we're now into a different part of the movie business from making and editing, right? Um, but if we've got a, a Facebook page, which is easily found. You just Google Facebook; it's expensive. Yeah. The same with the Instagram page, and then our main WordPress website is speedisexpensive.com. Handy that you've got you and to uh, to voice it as well, because of course mm. that'll be. You know, a lot of people who, if you said, oh, I've got a documentary about all motorbikes, they'd go, uh, oh, yeah, well done. And then you go, uh, Ewan McGregor. They go, oh, Ewan McGregor. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh Ewan McGregor's on it. Is he right? Okay. <laughs> he, um, he was very generous with his time, and he stepped in, and we recorded it during lockdown. He's um, a real enthusiast, isn't he? He's a true he motorcycle okay. enthusiast. He's not just yeah. he's not a poser. He's not just doing it for... For to publicise him, he doesn't need to. He's like a super high A-list movie star. He doesn't need any more publicity. He doesn't need it. He just seems to do things to do with motorcycles because he loves motorcycles. Exactly, and he said, "You know, this is a story that deserves to get out there to as big an audience." And obviously, his name being attached, as you say, helps that happen. That's it for another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Social media doesn't let us tell you about it. You need to spread the word about Speed Shop. Tell people how good it is, how entertaining it is, and how fantastic I am. See you back here next Wednesday.